I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like, you know, grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there and you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects? Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff, and I'm your cave-dwelling Quaker for the week. And I'm Matt Bernico, uh, the antinomian Quaker who tells you not to obey the law. <laughs> um, this week on The Magnificast, we're talking with Marcus Redeker, who is an amazing historian who's done a lot of cool work on the revolutionary history of the Atlantic. There's a lot there that is very neat. Um, so true Magnificast fans, uh, well, those who have listened to the podcast over the last few weeks <laughs> will know that right now, like we're really into pirates and we won't stop talking about it. Um, <laughs> um, and let's be honest, that's how we came across Marx's book, uh, in the first place. Um, uh, Marcus Redeker, yeah, he's written all these crazy and very good books about pirates and, um, and I love them, but also the most recent book is called the fearless Benjamin Lay, the Quaker dwarf who became the first revolutionary abolitionist. And it's an extremely good book. Um, I got through it in a week, and it was a very fun read and full of really good stories. Um, if you're into the stories that Marcus tells on the on the show here today, there's a bunch more in the book, and each one is better than the last. You're not going to want to miss them. Yeah, it's definitely a history book, um, but it's a story that people need to hear right now. And when I say it's a history book, I mean that Marcus has done his homework, and he uh, helps you know that, which is a good thing. I don't say that disparagingly. <laughs> it's a, good to have good historians who also um, make history uh, extremely relevant, which I think Marcus is kind of uniquely gifted at doing. Uh, Benjamin Lay was pretty unrelenting in trying to convince his fellow Quakers to give up slavery, which is really the, the kind of heartbeat of the, the book. Um, Lay provides a really radical example, too, of what it means to integrate politics and Christianity. Um, and his witness against slavery is a really provocative example of what's possible when people truly lean into those egalitarian moments in Christianity. We'll hear a lot more about that in the interview. Also, as we're all forced to confront what abolition means for us today, um, it's really helpful to think about abolitionists of the past. That's what drew us to this book, I think, more than anything else. So, for example, like, what would it mean to think about Benjamin Lay in the context of mass incarceration in prisons or in the context of immigration police or other institutions of white supremacy that we live with today? Uh, we don't really know how to answer those questions, but Marcus gives us some really good stories about Benjamin Lay and also some context to think more about that long history of abolition. So hopefully for Christians thinking about abolition as the entire uh, United States is on fire, um, and people are calling for abolition, maybe Benjamin Lay will provide at least one more sort of saint in the cloud of witnesses that you might appeal to in the coming weeks. All right, here's our interview with Marcus Redeker. 
First off, welcome to the show, Marcus. We're really glad to have you. I think there are a lot of ways that we could characterize you or introduce you. You've earned a lot of, you know, impressive academic credentials, but I have to admit that we usually think of you as the radical pirate guy or the uh, the Jack Sparrow of academia, if you will. Um, maybe not quite right. Uh, so how would you introduce yourself and describe some of the work you do for people who might not be familiar with your research and uh, what you're interested in? Yes, well, uh, thanks for having me on your podcast. Uh, I am a historian, and specifically, I do what's called history from below, basically the kind of history that is focused on ordinary working people, uh, the, the people who are usually left out of the old-fashioned history narratives. I got into this line of work because I was influenced by the movements of the 60s and 70s. Uh, and my generation basically found that the Cold War history that we had been taught was a, a collection of lies and that it had been quite severely whitewashed. So what we wanted was a new history, and I have uh, devoted my life to that as both a, a researcher and a teacher, uh, and I'd say also as uh, an activist. I've written uh, or co-written 10 books. I've also made a film working with the uh, director, uh, Tony Buba, a film about the uh, Amistad Rebellion of 1839. Uh, and I'm also at this moment writing a play with a friend named Naomi Wallace, a distinguished playwright. And we are writing a play about Benjamin Lay, the subject of my last book, uh, The Fearless Benjamin Lay. So. Uh, I'm a historian, but one with a very specific uh, project. Uh, we want history from below, or what's sometimes called people's history, or radical history. And uh, very happy to talk with you about all that. Man, that's so exciting. You're a real interdisciplinarian. Um, well, we were really excited to talk with you in general, but uh, your recent book, The Fearless Benjamin Lay, The Quaker Dwarf, Who Became the First Revolutionary Abolitionist, uh, will definitely be something that's interesting to our our listeners. Um, so just as an overview, um, how would you explain who Benjamin Lay is and, and um, what what uh, what's important for him uh, as, as a part of like the people's history? Benjamin Lay was born in 1682 in the aftermath of the English Revolution of the 1640s and 1650s. And that will prove to be important. Perhaps we'll get into that a little bit later on. Um, born in Essex, England a little bit uh, to the northeast of London, about 60 miles, born into a Quaker family. Uh, so he inherits a, a kind of radical religious tradition, and he extends it in new and important ways. I think one of the most significant things I could do to summarize uh, Benjamin Lay is to say that he was, in many respects, one of I would say the most radical person on the planet in the uh, 1730s, 1740s, when he was a, a fully engaged abolitionist against slavery. Uh, he was uh, race conscious. He was class conscious. He was gender conscious. And crucially, and this is a little surprising, he was also environmentally conscious in that time, way back. Uh, in the early 18th century, he used to say, beware of rich men who poison the world for gain. Uh, he saw this coming. Uh, he did have kind of a pr prophetic vision in many ways. So 
Benjamin Lay was a person who was committed to human equality in all forms. Uh, he was also a dwarf. He was about four feet tall. Uh, one of the things I've suggested in this book you mentioned, The Fearless Benjamin Lay, is that growing up uh, as a little person uh, informed his radicalism in the sense that he was someone who was uh, always being made fun of. Uh, I think this uh, was really a struggle for him to be taken equally, and it produced in him a kind of empathy for other people who were in some way or other on the margin. So I think he took uh, this fundamental fact of his life and turned it into a kind of solidarity that he expressed for others in difficult circumstances. That's a great way in here. It really gets a lot of themes on the table. Um, your book is so fascinating, but also really fun to read, I think, for that reason, uh, because you you make lay uh, both contemporary for us, uh, but also really do a good job contextualizing how radical he is in his own time. One thing that's really fun is there are lots of dramatic anecdotes about the way that Benjamin Lay confronts other Quakers about slavery, the way that he confronts his his world uh, on, along these lines you just mentioned. Could you maybe just tell us a few of your favorite stories about Benjamin Lay, some things that really stick out uh, and kind of exemplify uh, what you're talking about here? Yeah, sure. Gladly. Uh, Benjamin Lay was someone who believed that one needed to live one's ideas. In other words, it wasn't enough simply to hold a radical idea. You literally had to enact it in your daily life. So Benjamin Lay developed a kind of uh, street theater, you might call it, uh, performing uh, in public, in churches, in the streets to dramatize his ideas. And so let me give you uh, the example of one particular incident for which he's actually quite famous. This is uh, his best known moment of uh, what my generation called guerrilla theater. So the year is 1738, and the Quakers uh, in uh, the New World at that time in Pennsylvania and New Jersey uh, are all under something called the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting. And they had this annual meeting, which hundreds of Quakers would come from around the region. And I, and I do need to emphasize here that in this time period, Quakers were slave owners. Okay, very important to know. They came to the New World from England. Uh, they grew rich on trade and on land that they got from Native American groups. And they did what other wealthy people in early America did. They bought slaves. Uh, Benjamin was completely opposed to this practice, but you need to know that the, the wealthiest and most powerful Quakers were all slave owners. So this annual meeting in 1738 is going to be held in Burlington, New Jersey. Benjamin walks there from Abington, Pennsylvania, where he lived. Uh, he was a, a lover of animals, and he thought that riding a horse was exploiting a horse, so he would never do that. Uh, he walked everywhere he went, and he walked to this meeting, uh, about more than 20 miles, and he uh, had prepared himself for making a prophecy. What he had done uh, was to dress in a military uniform, and everybody should, should know, they probably do know, that Quakers were pacifists. They had basically forsaken war and weapons. Uh, they were they were committed pacifists, so it was 
a statement that Benjamin had dressed in this military uniform. He also strapped a sword on a belt to his waist. Then he took uh, an animal bladder, which at that time was a fairly common way to carry, carry liquids, and he filled it up with bright red pokeberry juice. Then he tied that off and put it inside the secret compartment of a book. Everybody has seen those books that have secret compartments. He put this animal bladder inside the book, closed the book, and then over his shoulders, he threw a, a great coat, an overcoat, as we would call it, so as to hide the, the military uniform, the sword, and the book. He goes into the Quaker meeting, and he positions himself in the middle of a group of these uh, very wealthy slave-owning Quakers. They were called weighty Quakers, meaning those who had the greatest influence uh, in the meeting. So Benjamin is there, and uh, Quakers, uh, you may know, and your listeners may know, do not have a formal minister. This is part of their commitment to equality. They, they, uh, people speak as the Spirit moves them. So Benjamin uh, waits his turn, and finally he stands up to speak, and in a, a booming voice he says, slavery is the greatest sin in the world. And then he throws off the overcoat and everyone sees the uniform and the sword. And there's this loud gasp that literally fills the big Quaker meeting house. There are hundreds of people there. And Benjamin continues. He, he basically takes out the sword. He takes the book in his left hand and holds it above his head. And then in this booming voice, he says, God will take vengeance against those people who oppress their fellow creatures. And at that moment, he runs the sword through the book, and the blood from the bladder comes gushing down his arm, and he then runs around in the Quaker meeting house, sprinkling blood on the slave owners so that everybody will know exactly the people he has in mind who are oppressing their fellow creatures. And then he just stands there still as a statue while the entire room breaks into total pandemonium, like total chaos. And he's just as quiet as can be. And uh, a group of Quaker men in a fury uh, come over and pick him up. Uh, he was pretty small, so it wasn't hard to do. They go running for the door and they throw him out into the streets, hoping that they are done with him. But as it happened, Benjamin really wasn't done with them just yet because he decides that he's going to do something else. It had been raining that day in Burlington, New Jersey, so the street was muddy. He goes back to the Quaker meeting house and he lies down on his back right beneath the first step when people come out to exit uh, the meeting house so that they are now going to have to step over his body to get out of the meeting. However long it takes, he doesn't care. He's going to lie there in the rain on his back, putting his body on the line to prove that slave owning is wrong and that there will be no business as usual if he can help it. So this was, uh, this was one moment of guerrilla theater among many. Uh, the Quaker uh, elite uh, came to hate Benjamin for his confrontational ways. 
he was uh, disowned from not one, not two, not three, but four different Quaker meetings. Uh, and this, of course, was very painful to him because he was a very devoted Quaker. He loved Quakerism. Uh, he loved his fellow Quakers as long as they didn't own slaves or do other things that he considered uh, sinful. Uh, and so he was, a, he was an outcast because of his uh, political beliefs. But he did this kind of thing frequently over the years, and uh, this will give you a pretty good idea of what Benjamin was like. That's incredible. Um, Benjamin Lay, I, I mean, your book is full of these stories about Benjamin Lay doing, you know, all these different types of, like you said, guerrilla street theater. And I, I think that, um, I mean, they must have taken tremendous courage for sure, but they're also just like the the most entertaining stories as well. It, it's, it's great all around. Um, he, he's a completely extraordinary character. Um, I think there's a lot of really cool things to pull out about his life. Uh, but maybe before we do that, you could help us set the stage a little bit historically. Um, you know, what kind of things um, are, are going on in the background that Benjamin Lay might be responding to? Um, like what's, uh, what's happening during this time period in terms of like struggles and ideas? Okay, that's a good question. Uh, let, let's go back to the English Revolution, which I mentioned at the outset, uh, just to, to remind people of what this was. This was really a great event in world history. Uh, in the early 1640s, there developed literally a war between uh, the king and the royalists of England on the one hand, and the parliamentarians led by Oliver Cromwell on the other. Uh, this is the battle between the uh, the Royalists in Parliament. Some people call it the, the battle between the Cavaliers and the Roundheads, but it literally became a war with, with dueling armies. In the middle of this war in the 1640s, uh, which will eventually result in the overthrow of King Charles I, as it happened, the royal censorship which was a very important part of the uh, government of England at that time, the censorship broke down. And this meant that anybody could go into print with their own ideas. And there were many people committed to very revolutionary ideas who rushed into print to give their ideas about how to solve the problems of the day. Within the parliamentary uh, side in the English Revolution, there were a lot of religious radicals. In fact, uh, this is a period where you really cannot separate politics and religion. Uh, Oliver Cromwell himself was, was quite political. He was a dissenter, uh, as you might say. Uh, a similarity in terms of what people in this country would know is that he was uh, similar to the Puritans in many respects. But there was also a very large group of much more radical figures on the left wing of the English Revolution and these people had very colorful names. They are called the levelers, the diggers, the seekers, the ranters, and crucially, the Quakers. The Quakers are one of the radical religious groups that come out of the English Revolution. These groups stood for all kinds of radical possibilities. To give some examples, uh, many of them opposed the enclosure of land, meaning the privatization of land, the commons that had been so central to the sustenance of peasants for centuries. This land is being enclosed and turned over to private farmers for uh, the raising of sheep because of the sort of nascent industrial revolution. Some uh, of the uh, radicals of this group 
were very much in favor of extending the democratic franchise. The levelers in particular were very well known for this. They wanted a much broader electorate. They wanted poor people to have political rights. Uh, the, the Quakers were a significant part of this. And one of the things that they did, which was considered very controversial in that day, was that they essentially refused to show any deference to the wealthy of their own society. And one way they did this was by refusing to take off their hats when they met a gentleman. It was called hat honor. And so Quakers would keep their hats on. Uh, basically saying, you're no better than I am. I'm not taking my hat off to you. We are all equal in God's eyes. So what you get in the English Revolution is this incredible explosion of radical ideas. It includes greater freedom for women. It includes a critique of slavery. Now, slavery was not yet racialized completely. So when these religious radicals opposed slavery, that meant they were imposing forced conscription into the army or the navy, or it meant indentured servitude, or it meant the loss of your commons to be rendered a slave. It did also mean plantation slavery. So within this world, which is so brilliantly described by the British historian Christopher Hill in a book called The World Turned Upside Down, you find uh, this extraordinary ferment of radical ideas, and this is where the Quakers themselves come from, and this is going to be the legacy of Benjamin Lay. Now, to make a long and complex story short, the English Revolution is finally defeated in 1660. The son of King Charles I, who had been overthrown and executed in 1649, in 1660, his son, King Charles II, is brought back to England. Uh, he is put back on the throne, and the religious radicals who had flourished in the 1640s and 1650s are now quite severely oppressed. Actually, some of them are hanged, and many of others uh, go into exile to, to the Americas, for example. So, so this is a very formative event for people like Benjamin Lay and for radical religion more broadly. But it's important to say that there are other things going on at this time. This is also the moment when England is building its Atlantic empire. They've already got the 13 colonies. These, most of these are already established by then. More colonies like Pennsylvania will be established a little bit later in the 1670s and 1680s. There are Caribbean islands that will become English colonies. Uh, the, the English seas, Jamaica from Spain in 1655. So they're building a, a, a kind of world colonial system. And to do this, they've got to have both land and labor. So this also represents the moment when the uh, expropriation of land from Native Americans is advancing very quickly, and the slave trade to Africa, to West Africa, is gearing up, because these land and labor are absolutely central to this new colony system, this colonial system. Uh, and, and we also should point out that this colonial system, as organized by England, is really also the origins of the rise of capitalism. So there are these extraordinarily powerful historical forces playing out in England and around the Atlantic uh, in the 17th and 18th century, and this will be an essential context for the life of Benjamin Lay.
Thanks, Marcus. That is a ton to uh, sort of chew on, uh, especially kind of seeing this as a, a, a very pivotal uh, moment in history that Benjamin Lay is, is clearly uh, trying to speak into lots of different forces um, congealing. Uh, the introduction to your book is interesting because you, you title it Profit Against Slavery uh, to talk about Lay. And it makes even more sense kind of thinking with all that stuff in the background you were just saying about um, what was happening in, in England and the, the radical uh, reformation that was happening there. Um, something that's really energizing about Benjamin Lay for us, of course, is the way that his desire for abolition stems from his religiosity. And I think especially as, you know, the whole world is kind of talking about abolition right now, um, we're kind of rethinking and looking for these abolitionist figures in history. And uh, for Christians on the left, maybe you could help us parse out a little bit how Lay's religion and politics intersect in that abolitionist um, framework. Uh, again, with all those forces you have in mind and that you've, you've brought to our attention, uh, how does that abolitionism stem from both that kind of political and religious um, ferment? Okay, sure, gladly. Uh, it, it is important to know that, you know, the, the, the world of politics and religion are really not going to be separated uh, until the late 18th century with the rise of the French Revolution, the appearance of people like Tom Paine, a new political language of republicanism will develop. Uh, in the 17th and early 18th century, religion and politics are very closely intertwined. In fact, they are really inseparable. So Benjamin Lay's view of slavery is based completely on his religious beliefs. Now, the interesting question is, which religious beliefs? Uh, there are many that, uh, that Lay emphasizes. And I should also say that Within Quakerism itself, there are really two strands. There is a kind of um, moderate Quakerism associated with George Fox. Uh, that's the Quakerism that basically has survived. But there was always a more radical variant of Quakerism, which was really uh, crucial. And Benjamin Lay was a part of that. This kind of Quakerism was, was much more deeply committed to equality uh, much more deeply committed to treating people in an ethical way. One of the main ideas of the Quakers, which turns out to be a very important idea to the uh, abolition movement, is the golden rule that you should treat other people as they want, as you would want them to treat you. And uh, this is a very kind of simple, deceptively simple idea. But Benjamin Lay would rise in meeting after meeting and say to the slave owners, would you really want someone to treat you as a slave? Would anybody here ever want to be treated as a slave? And of course, nobody did. And he says, in that case, you cannot treat others you, that way. You cannot enslave other people. So, so Benjamin Lay has a, a core of radical religious ideas. Some of them he used. Uh, to argue specifically against slavery. And there was one in particular, uh, an idea that comes from the book of Acts, uh, 1726. It says, basically, God made the people of the earth all of one blood, meaning all of humankind is interrelated. And what Laywood meant when he, when he, used, when he cited this uh, part of the Bible was that we must not divide humanity up into different races. For the sake of oppression, we are all connected. 
he also was uh, very keen on another phrase that God is no respecter of persons. And by that, Benjamin Lay meant uh, God doesn't prefer white people to black people. God doesn't prefer men to women. God doesn't prefer rich people to poor people. Everybody is equal in his eyes. So, so he had a, a, a body of religious ideas that are really important and, and I would say make up kind of the core of his being. Now, turning specifically to slavery, one of the things I talk about in the book is that Benjamin's theology, or you might call it his, uh, his, his theology of liberation, is based on the book of Revelation, which is a very powerful and very uh, symbolic, uh, complex book of the Bible. He basically read the story of uh, of Revelation in which the archangel Michael uh, and his army of angels does battle in heaven with uh, the great red dragon symbolizing Satan and his army of angels. There's this tremendous uh, battle in heaven. Uh, Michael prevails. The red dragon is cast out, cast down to earth. But in the process of the battle, the, the great red dragon had done something important, had gathered up, according to the book of Revelation, a third of the stars of heaven with its tail and cast them down to earth. So when Satan is finally outcast to earth, he comes down and from those stars beneath the the surface of the ground, there now pops up new creatures. And that set of creatures in Benjamin Lay's reading were the slave owners. The slave owners were literally the offspring of Satan. So he, he reads... Uh, the book of Revelation in this very innovative and creative way. And that then takes him to the position that you must not cooperate with slave owners in any way because they are actually satanic. So what you see is that his political ideas and his religious ideas are uh, completely inseparable. And uh, this is also one reason why Benjamin Lay believed that slavery had to be abolished immediately. A lot of people uh, believed, well, it could be done gradually. His view was it cannot be done gradually because it is evil. It must be done immediately. So he was a very radical abolitionist in that way as well. Um, I don't want to get too far into the the theological weeds here, but an idea or or part of the story about Benjamin Lee that sticks out to me in your book is um, the ways that antinomianism and also like cynic philosophy kind of play into Benjamin Lee and like who he is. Um, would you mind just saying something about that? Yes, this word uh, antinomianism is uh, its a difficult word, but it's an important idea. So I'm very glad you bring it up. This was a very uh, important part of the religious radicalism of the English Revolution. And basically what it meant, if you break that word down, the, the root word is nomos. Antinomian, the root word is nomos. And that's a Greek word meaning the social order or... Uh, the law or established authority. So if you are antinomian, that basically means that you are against the established authority of society. What that meant in practical terms was that antinomians, and Benjamin Lay was antinomian to his bones, 
Antinomians believed that rich men made the laws for their own purposes and for their own interests, and that truly godly people were not bound to obey them. That there was a different kind of law, a higher law, as antinomians called it. And so Benjamin had this, uh, this very same attitude. So he thought that all of the laws supporting slavery in America had been made by rich slave owners, and he was absolutely right about that, and that people did not have to obey those laws. They should not obey those laws because those laws were oppressive and ungodly. Well, you can imagine that, that this made Benjamin very, very unpopular because this is a, a truly radical idea to say that you are not bound by the laws of the society uh, that you grew up in. So, so this is a very big part of Benjamin's belief, beliefs. Uh, and I, and I, I do think it's important, you mentioned the cynic philosophers of ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Uh, the most famous of these was a man named Diogenes. Uh, Benjamin read a lot of classical philosophy, and uh, he admired Diogenes very much because Diogenes was in some ways the classic antinomian, although not a Christian, I might add. But he did not respect the power of kings. There's a famous story of Alexander the Great, the emperor, uh, meeting with Diogenes. And uh, Diogenes is a very famous philosopher by this time. And he comes up to him and says, oh, Diogenes, if there's anything I can do, would you please let me know? Uh, Diogenes was uh, uh, taking repose in a garden at the time. And he looks up at Alexander the Great and said, yeah, there is one thing you could do. Get out of my sunlight. So this was uh, sort of the attitude to authority that the cynic philosophers had. Uh, the cynic philosophers also believed that you had to embody your ideas uh, in the way that you lived. You had to act out your ideas. Benjamin Lay took that to heart. Uh, they rejected wealth. They rejected symbols of privilege. Benjamin Lake took that to heart. There are a whole series of, of uh, beliefs of the cynic philosophers that Benjamin Lay combined creatively with his vision of Christianity. So we see that he is really quite a, a, quite a thinker. And he did consider himself a philosopher, blending together radical ideas from different traditions. Yeah, thanks so much for putting that together for us. I, I think that some of those ideas are, are really what made Benjamin Lay like make sense to me. So hearing all that uh, how it works out is is really helpful. Um, well, in the conclusion of your book, you uh, you make the claim that Benjamin Lay, um, you know, he he wrote and lived a, a, an 18th century liberation theology, and I, I think that's a pretty you make a pretty strong case for that <laughs> even here. Um, while the historical conditions and the geography are quite different, could you maybe draw some parallels out between um, Lay's liberation theology and you know the liberation theology we might find in Latin America or, or something? Sure. The, uh, the phrase liberation theology to us these days uh, is associated with a, a movement in Latin America uh, in the 1960s and 1970s primarily when various struggles from below were going on and certain members of the Catholic Church uh, identified with the struggles of uh, peasants, uh, urban workers, indigenous peoples, and helped to build base communities or uh, based on principles of equality and democracy. It was a very radical trend. Um, what I began to see was that a lot of the thinkers who came out of the English Revolution and people like Benjamin Lay from a later period 
were actually promoting the same ideas based on the same parts of the Bible. In other words, if you read uh, what the liberation theologians are saying in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and actually even down to today, they're drawing on the primary social justice passages of the Bible, uh, especially the book of Isaiah. This is, uh, this is very important. Uh, and, and Benjamin Lay and lots of other you know, levelers and diggers and seekers and the like were doing something very similar in the 17th and 18th century, very similar sets of ideas. Now, I actually had some conversations about this with the great historian of the English Revolution I mentioned earlier, Christopher Hill. Uh, and we talked about this at great length about the way that the ideas of liberation theology, uh, as, as we knew them uh, in the more modern period, are actually very deep and very long, and that there is a history here to be recovered to show that inside Christianity, people have been struggling for a vision of a different world for a very long time. And so one of the reasons I was very eager to write this book on Benjamin Lay was to flesh out some of these ideas uh, and to talk about the way in which he really did represent a kind of theology of liberation for an earlier period. Uh, you're definitely uh, speaking our language here, Marcus. <laughs> That's the sort of thing that we're always um, you know, excited by and interested in and, and looking for those kinds of figures and those deeper roots and, and recovering that history. Um, we also are we're interested, kind of as we tracked this uh, this radical religion that you've drawn out in the text, um, we were also interested in how Lay is maybe um, in the, the milieu of many other kind of radical movements that are appearing. And of course, you've done lots and lots of work on piracy and this kind of, as you say it, this philosophy or history from below uh, about the, the Atlantic and, and what it meant for people to sail the Atlantic or be stolen and taken across the Atlantic, etc., um, and I'm really interested in how Lay maybe factors into that movement. Um, Lay and his wife, Sarah, who's also quite radical, uh, they both settle in Barbados in 1718, you say in the book, which is during the, the golden age of piracy. Um, do you think that there's a relationship between Lay's ideas regarding equality and abolition and maybe something like the kind of democratic practices of people like pirates or, you know, these these worker uprisings, et cetera, that are happening around this time? You know, he spent some time as a sailor, as you draw in the text. Um, so we're, we're curious, is there any sort of cross-pollination of ideas there? Everybody always wants to know about the pirates. <laughs> <laughs> And I, I can't say I blame them because they are, uh, in, in a very odd way, they are, they've become cultural heroes. Uh, even though they were in the 18th century, they, the, the golden age of piracy, they were hunted down and hanged. Uh, everybody remembers them. We make endless films about them. We, people write novels about them, children's books about them. We don't remember the people who hanged them. So even though pirates uh, lost the battle, they won the war for popular memory. Uh, and I can tell you that having written about piracy, uh, once you do that, the phone never stops ringing. Everybody wants to know about <laughs> pirates. So I'm not surprised by your question. Uh, and as it happens, it, there are some interesting connections between Benjamin Lay and uh, the rise of piracy, because the pirates, too, had a very democratic and egalitarian culture aboard their ships. Uh, Pirates elected their own captains in a time when that was absolutely unheard of because the, 
the captain of a merchant or a naval vessel in the late 17th, early 18th century was total, like a total authoritarian control of the ship. Pirates ran a ship in a completely different way. They divided up their loot in a very equal way, unlike any other kind of ship sailing the Atlantic at that time. So pirates did have a kind of counterculture uh, of their own. And Benjamin Lay, as you say, was a sailor. And this was a really formative part of his experience. He was a sailor for 12 years. Uh, he sailed around the world, around the Atlantic, um, and he imbibed the culture of the common sailor. Now, th that's really a key to understanding Benjamin Lay's political ideas, because one of the things that was very common to all seafaring people, here I'm not just talking about pirates, but, but really all deep sea sailors uh, of this era, they had an ethic of solidarity that grew out of the dangerous working conditions of their lives. Uh, to give you an example, uh, on any given day, when you're working on a tall ship at sea, your life is in the hands of your fellow workers. You depend on them. It's a little bit like coal mining, which also had a very strong culture of solidarity. So, so Benjamin uh, came to believe in the idea of solidarity, and his genius was to expand that idea much more broadly than many sailors did and to apply it to anybody who was in really difficult working conditions. And of course, that included uh, enslaved people more than anybody else because their working conditions were the worst. And when Benjamin and Sarah uh, landed in Barbados in 1718, they got an education about the nature of slavery that was truly life transforming. Uh, Barbados was the leading slave society in the world in 1718. Lots of Quakers there owned slaves. Benjamin and Sarah were horrified. And so he began to talk with enslaved people. He began to, he saw that they were hungry. He and Sarah invited them uh, to their home on Sunday, the one day of the week they had off. They, they fed the hungry and Benjamin soon began to denounce slavery, which caused the sugar planters, the ruling class, of Barbados to uh, threaten to ban him from the island. Uh, they were gonna throw him off for, for basically, as they put it, inciting insurrections among the enslaved people. Uh, Benjamin decided, Benjamin and Sarah decided to leave on their own before that happened. But here's the connection to pirates. They both grow out of that culture of the common sailor, but there was one major difference. Pirates were extremely irreligious. And Benjamin was extremely religious, so he would not have liked their cursing and damning and, you know, that sort of uh, language. He wouldn't have liked that, but I think he would have understood a lot of the political ideas that were embodied uh, in the organization of their ship. So, so there was definitely, as you put it, a cross-pollination po of ideas between Benjamin Lay and these other radicals. Uh, pirates in the same era. Um, I think it's helpful. Well, maybe we can um, round out Benjamin Lay's life a little bit. Um, uh, your book mentions that after his death, um, Lay was, you know, kind of altered to make him more useful for certain purposes. Uh, in some ways, he was disarmed, as you put it. Um, but he also became an inspirational figure for the abolition movement um, and um, for Quakers, 
you know, um, stepping away from the practice of slavery. So uh, could you say something about Lay's legacy and how he how he was received in his own time, but also, um, you know, what's the what's the bigger picture of his life after his death? Yes, Benjamin. Okay, here's the first point. Benjamin Lay was a polarizing figure, and that was by design. These these acts of guerrilla theater. You know, he knew that he wasn't going to convince people very easily, but what he wanted to do was to confront people. <coughs> excuse me. He wanted to confront people about ideas that they had somehow inherited and never fully considered. So therefore, Benjamin made a lot of enemies. He had friends. He had a lot of friends. There were a lot of people who loved him, a lot of people who respected his high moral standards and his refusal to compromise. But he, his enemies really despised him. So, so Benjamin was this kind of polarizing figure. When uh, he, late in his life, um, there was a, a painting made of Benjamin Lay commissioned by Deborah Franklin, the, the wife of Benjamin Franklin. This was a gift for Benjamin Franklin. Uh, I think she understood that Benjamin Lay was going to be a person of historical significance. So she had this uh, painting uh, executed. But what's really fascinating about it, it showed Benjamin, by the way, lived in a cave. You know, part of his rejection of refinement and privilege was he lived in a cave. He and Sarah lived in a cave. Uh, he grew all of his own food. Uh, he made all of his own clothes. He uh, refused to consume any commodity that had been made by exploited labor. Okay, so he's, in some ways, he's the origin of this idea of complicity, that if you consume sugar, you were supporting uh, slavery. This The sugar boycott will become a major uh, tactic in the abolition movement long after Benjamin Lay is dead, but he was the he was the first person uh, to do it. Despite this being his main the main idea of his life, the opposition to slavery, the painting uh, that the that the Franklin's uh, commission has no reference to slavery in it. So it's almost like the the prophet has been disarmed. And then when Benjamin died, several of his friends made up. Uh, uh, had a, another artist make an engraving uh, of Benjamin standing in front of his cave, uh, holding fruits and vegetables. You know, he was also a vegetarian. Uh, this was part of his love of animals. Uh, and this, too, had no reference to slavery in it. So there's this fascinating way in which the controversies that Benjamin caused on the issue of slavery resulted in people trying to de-radicalize him to make him a more acceptable figure. But the movement against slavery is growing among the Quakers in this time period. Um, in fact, the, the 20 years, let's say between the 1730s and the 1750s, when Benjamin is the leading figure opposing slavery, this is the time when the hearts and minds of rank and file Quakers really begin to change. So uh, Benjamin was always wondering, would he live to see Quakers abolish slavery. He knew that they were gaining. He had a lot of people who quietly supported him because they were fearful of antagonizing the wealthy Quakers who owned slaves. Well, in 1758, the year before Benjamin died, a man visited him in his cave and said, Benjamin, um, 
the Philadelphia Yearly Meeting, and that, by the way, is the group of people that always led the attack on Benjamin, they have now resolved that any Quaker who participates in the slave trade can be disowned. And Benjamin was very happy about this because he knew that this was the beginning of the end, that eventually Quakers would abolish slaveholding in their own midst. And it took another 17 years up to 1776, but the Quakers did finally become the first group who said, you cannot own slaves and be a member of our group. Now, Benjamin Lee had a lot to do with that, but he has tended to be de-emphasized in favor of other Quaker abolitionists who did not use such radical and confrontational methods. People especially like John Woolman, who is admittedly a very important figure. In some ways, he's the very opposite of Benjamin Lay, not confrontational. But, but Lay was really the, the key figure at the critical moment. Uh, so as this movement of anti-slavery begins to, to grow, Benjamin is rediscovered. It basically becomes a matter of wanting to build a kind of genealogy of the, of the anti-slavery movement. And so in the 1780s and 1790s, the abolitionists based in Philadelphia, people like Benjamin Rush, who will be one of the signers of the, who was one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence, they start reprinting that engraving of Benjamin Lay. And we know from Rush and others that abolitionists frequently had this image of Benjamin Lay in their home, that he was a man to be admired. He was no longer a villain, uh, certainly not within the abolition movement. So as it happens, uh, even the image that they made of Benjamin uh, was transformed. It was given a, uh, a particularly radical anti-slavery message. In that painting, and in that image, he's holding a book. But when the abolitionists finally uh, remake that image, they write on the book African Emancipation to, to signify that this was the main cause of his life. And that is actually uh, true. So, so Benjamin Lay does enter the, uh, the, the traditions of abolitionism. Uh, he tends to be uh, someone that people re remember several 19th century abolitionists write about him, Lydia Maria Child, for example, Benjamin Lundy and others. But then after the Civil War, uh, Benjamin tends to be forgotten again. And so he really was not well, very well known for a very long time. And one of my purposes in writing this book was essentially to bring him back to public memory. And uh, I'm, I'm happy to say that, uh, that this, is, this has actually happened. Uh, one of the most meaningful things that I have been through as a writer and as an activist uh, happened when the four Quaker meetings, two in England and two in the United States, who had disowned Benjamin during his own lifetime, have now taken him back. They basically have admitted that he was right, that the Quakers who expelled him from the meeting were wrong, and so they have re-embraced his radical spirit. So I'm very happy to say that Benjamin's legacy is thriving again after having been forgotten and lost for a very long time. Uh, that's really great and really neat to hear. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how Lake can maybe continue to, to trouble um, 
Quakers and other Christians now that he's maybe coming back in the public memory thanks to your work. There's, well, well, um, me, on that yeah. side, let me, let me mention that one of the things that's been most fascinating to me in, uh, in, in giving talks about this book, Benjamin still has the ability to make people feel really nervous. Uh, and I noticed this among some Quakers. Uh, basically, there was a debate among different Quakers about whether they should re-embrace his spirit. And some people were uh, still, after almost 300 years, they were still afraid of him. Uh, the, the, his confrontational ways still cause fear. The depth of his radicalism still causes fear because he had this integrated worldview. He thought all oppression was interrelated. You might say he was the first uh, intersectionalist. He saw that the oppression of women was related to the oppression of African people, which was related to the oppression of poor people through class, which was related to the degradation of the world um, and the environment. So in a, in a very real way, I think uh, Benjamin's ability to cause discomfort and his ability to speak to so many issues that we think are important is one of the main reasons why we now need him on our side. It's not that we're on his side, it's that he can be on our side as an example of somebody who fought for this combination of ideas long before we thought this was possible. I mean, if you ask somebody, uh, when was it possible to be class conscious, race conscious, gender conscious, and environmentally conscious, all at once, they would probably say the 1970s. Well, no, the 1730s. And we've got the person to prove it. I love that. That's great. I'll be thinking about that for a while. Uh, well, as we close out this conversation, maybe I could ask a, a final question that, that pulls some of this in um, a little more broadly or generally. You know, you've done all this work coming through archives and historical data, finding this, this revolutionary spirit, this history from below. Um, you know, we, we're watching all these headlines and, and participating in, in movements that are happening right now and, and trying to think all that through. Um, it can be uh, difficult to get your bearings, of course, in the present. Uh, but what is particularly useful about this kind of historiography, or at least useful to me, um, is that you do find certain precedents or certain uh, examples that can maybe give you, you know, your bearings or, or at least help you uh, feel not so alone or something like that. Anyway, uh, all that to say, uh, I wonder what you think is particularly useful about historiography. Um, and do you think there is something about recovering these radical figures that can help us um, in our own time, you know, not just as historical data, but as people who are, are part of a living memory? You know, I do. And this is a... Uh... This is basically why I do history. Uh, I think that we can take not only knowledge, but inspiration from the people who fought for justice in the past. And I think it's actually really necessary that we know that and that we do that. Because as you say, these battles can seem very lonely. But the truth is that a lot of thing that, things that people are fighting for now have been fought for over centuries. You know, this is, this is an extraordinary thing. The struggle against slavery has been going on for centuries. We are living in this country right now with the legacy of slavery. The violence of slavery is with us every moment, every day. So in order to, to, to make the most of our possibilities for building a better future, we need to reach back. Uh, the great uh, West Indian uh, scholar activist C.L.R. James once said, um, 
working people learn history best when they are making history because that's the time when you need it. So now is actually a great time to ransack the past for these histories from below, for the people who fought back, because there is a continuous history of struggle. Let, let me just give you one example from uh, uh, one of my other books called Between the Devil and the Deep Blue Sea. Most people don't know it, but uh, the origin of the word to strike to go on strike, to stop work. That goes back to 1768 in London when a group of sailors had been uh, hit with a big wage reduction. Uh, the merchants who owned the ships decided they were making too much money, so they cut their wages. And the sailors did something really interesting at that point. They went from ship to ship all around the port of London, and they took down the sails. And you probably know that when you take down a sail, that's called to strike the sail. You strike the sail. Well, they strike the sails. The ships don't operate. Capital doesn't accumulate. And suddenly the working class has a new kind of power. So, so we need to know what people in previous struggles have done, because in some ways we are the result of those struggles, that we ourselves have been produced. So I think knowing... Um, exactly how people fought for justice in the past uh, will, will help us. Uh, and and, and it's, this is especially true when it comes to trying to imagine a different world. You know, the, 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 the reality lies on the minds of the living in a really powerful way, like a mountain. Uh, but there were people like Benjamin Lay who dared to live differently. He lived in a completely different way. He lived outside the market economy of capitalism. He didn't buy and sell things, or, or actually only one thing, and that was books. He loved books. Uh, but he didn't buy clothing. He didn't buy food because he felt that if you're going to do that, you can participate in the oppression of other people without knowing it. For example, if you drop a cube of sugar into your cup of tea, you are actually complicitous with the oppression of tea workers in India and sugar workers in the Caribbean. And so I'll just end by giving you one more example of Benjamin's guerrilla theater. He went into the market, the public market of Philadelphia in the year 1742, and he set up in the market a set of fine china teacups. And he began to talk about the way in which uh, all of these fine things were based on a history of oppression. And he was especially upset about tea drinking and about sugar, consumption of those two things. So as he's giving his speech, he pulls a mallet out from inside his shirt and starts smashing the teacups. And the people who had gathered to watch him are totally uh, shocked by this. And they start screaming, don't, don't do that. Don't do that. Those are fine China teacups, smash and smash again, because he was trying to make this point that, you know, if you're not mindful of what you're consuming, you are actually participating in the oppression of other people. So he, he was trying to get people to, to think in a broader global way. This in some ways is, is similar to the idea of the uh, anti-sweatshop movement. Think of the conditions under which your expensive sneakers are produced. Who produces them? Where? And under what kind of circumstances? Benjamin Lay was onto this idea uh, 200 and 
50 years ago. We need to know that. That can help us as we think and as we struggle towards something much better. So I'm a big believer that history from below can, can help us. We can see what's worked in the past and what hasn't, but it, it can also inspire us uh, to struggle harder and to do better. Uh, that's great and a fantastic note to end on. Uh, we really appreciate you coming on the show, Marcus, and sharing with us uh, about Benjamin Lay. Um, we look forward to seeing this play someday. What a great way to honor this uh, guerrilla theater um, <laughs> master. Uh, and uh, yeah, we, we look forward to seeing what else you have on the horizon. Um, thanks again for coming on the show. If there's anything you want to plug also, by the way, at the end here, you're welcome to do that. You know, I, I am kind of very excited about the play. Uh, my colleague Naomi Wallace, the person I'm writing it with, is a very gifted playwright, and uh, she told me years ago, we worked together on another, another of her plays called Li The Liquid Plain, which is based on a story in a book that I wrote called The Slave Ship, A Human History. Uh, and at that time, we were doing that work, I told her about this book I was writing about Benjamin Lay, and she said, uh, oh, we're going to write a play about him. And I didn't actually think that was true. I didn't think we would, but uh, in fact, we have. And it's all part of the same effort to bring Benjamin Lay and his radical ideas uh, back into the public. So we've done uh, three workshops on the play now uh, with uh, top directors. We uh, had one in London and two in New York. So we're hopeful that uh, once we get on the other side of this uh, coronavirus crisis, that we'll get a production of the play and and be able to bring uh, Benjamin Lay to a to another group of people who we think will uh, appreciate him for his uh, ornery radicalism. That's great. I look forward to it. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard. You can find us all over the internet. We are on Twitter at The Magnificast. We are on Facebook. We have a group called The Magnificast Basement. Uh, definitely pick up Marcus's book. Again, it is called The Fearless Benjamin Lay, The Quaker Dwarf Who Became the First Revolutionary Abolitionist. It's a really fantastic uh, text. We encourage you to check that out. Um, and Marcus's other books are really fantastic too, by the way. If you're interested in um, just the history of the Atlantic and what's going on there, um, he is a great historian of all that stuff. You gotta read uh, Villains our, of All Nations. It's so good. It's the, yeah, that's the big pirate book. It's so fun. It's very good. <laughs> it's too good. Um, there's so much stuff there. Marcus Redeker is one of those people who, like, if I could read all of one person's work, actually, he's a person that I'd really like to work through at some point in my life. So, anyway, pretty high endorsement. Uh, admittedly, it is because I love pirates, but there's so much more. Um, <laughs> so much more to Marcus Redeker and so much more to that history. Uh, it's too bad, Marcus, that you've turned into the pirate guy. But listen, it's not the worst brand to have. Um, thanks again, Marcus, for coming on the show. Thanks also to Amoria Armstrong for making our fantastic uh, intro music, as always, and to the Illogical Spoon for our outro. We'll see you next week. Church in the morning, church in the morning, souls alive. Heaven come to earth and there won't be no church. We'll meet down by the riverside. There we'll swim with all creation. Never get tired, never bored. Don't worry, someday there'll be no dam between us and our Lord. Jackson, keep your hoods up, you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late.
Jackson, you keep your hoods up, well you keep your hoods up, and you stay up late, oh don't mind, hey cold.